in the presence of Jehovah, no place, no better place to be. We'll open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to begin this extremely helpful book, and I can't wait to, to get into it. One of the things that you have to do in order to to preach through a, a book of the Bible, verse by verse, you have to look at the whole thing. You have to understand it from beginning to end and find out where the theme is, what the structure is, how it's all put together. What is the author trying to say? And then, and then once you do that, then you can go back and 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 grind through some of the some of the detail. And so I've been swimming in Ecclesiastes for some time, and I'm going to do my best not to dump the, the whole load on you this morning, because it is, it's an amazing book. If there was ever a needed message in our narcissistic, pleasure-seeking world, it's the message of Ecclesiastes. If you have read the book, you know exactly what, what I mean, and it sounds like Ashton has read the book. It hits you dead in the face with the reality that your self-inflated pursuits are not that important at all. And once you're down, it, it holds you there chapter by chapter until you cry uncle. And you will cry uncle by the end of the, the book, or you'll check out and you'll, you'll just reject the message altogether. Ecclesiastes allows you to see yourself and the world that you live in rightly. It is a book with a, with a timeless message. Naive preachers who think their job, think it's their job to make the Bible relevant and foolish people who question whether it is need only to read this book to be cured of that delusion. When you read Ecclesiastes, it's like Solomon has been following you around in the darkest moments of your life. It's like he's been living inside your head whenever you begin to ask some really difficult questions about what you see around you and what you experience. It's, it's like Solomon has been reading the headlines of our day. You find in Ecclesiastes precisely the same questions about life that people have been asking since the beginning of time, written some 3,000 years before, before today. But what's even more important is the book also has the answers to those questions. This may surprise you, but second to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is arguably the most applicational book in the Old Testament. Does that shock you? It will transform your life. If you, if you, if you grab a hold of the message of Ecclesiastes and use that as a lens through which you view life, it will transform you. Ecclesiastes is a practical book for daily Christian living. It's an honest, realistic, and hopeful look at life, if you put it in the proper order. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, who greatly wanted to honor God with his life, but like you do, found it frustrating at times, found its pursuits falling short of satisfying, found it at times perplexing, 
leaving you with questions that have no answers this side of, of heaven. And contrary to what you may have thought, Ecclesiastes is not some dark, morbid book that an atheist snuck into the Bible. I mean, you read it and you think, how did that get in the Bible? Where did that come from? It's the Holy Spirit's guide to living in a frustrating and confusing world. It prepares you to live in that world, and even more importantly, it gives you the the desire for the next. Ecclesiastes is a commentary on how to live skillfully in a Genesis 3 world, a world that is under the curse. It's highly applicational because Proverbs deals, or Solomon, I should say, deals with the real issues of life, the futility of work. You work and you work and you find little to show for it. The alarm clock goes off the next morning and you get up and you do it all over again. The injustice of government and wicked people in power, something that the world is all abuzz about today, trying to fix and trying to correct. Ecclesiastes talks directly about it. The dissatisfaction in foolish pleasure. The inequity of sickness and death. It comes to the just as well as the unjust. Being a believer does not inoculate you from disease and deformity and and even dying. The feeling that life is too short and life is too long all at the same time. It flies by and it drags on. All of that is addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. We all feel that whenever we read the book, right? I mean, I work and I never get ahead. I trust God and my relative still gets cancer. I see evil and injustice and those who do it seem like they're getting away with it. And if that wasn't bad enough, at the end we die. One writer said the first part of Ecclesiastes feels like it was written on a Monday morning. (laughs) But thankfully, the last chapter was written on Sunday at high noon. If you read Ecclesiastes without understanding how to approach it, you might think the answer to life is cynicism or suicide. And sadly, people go through life without reading the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's what they can conclude. That's what they conclude. I mean, you look around at our world. It's empty. People are ending their life. They have no purpose in life. And if they would read the book of Ecclesiastes, it would, it would change. If you interpret Ecclesiastes rightly, however, there's gold to be found there. Ecclesiastes has two goals. It will loosen your grip on a sin-cursed world by opening your eyes to what life is, is, really, is really like. You will feel, as we go through Ecclesiastes, tension. You're going to feel things like, I don't know that I like what that's saying. And it's going to loosen your grip. If that's happening, it's trying to loosen your grip on this world. This is for the people who are still living with the delusion that life can bring satisfaction. And if you listen to Ecclesiastes and you get depressed, it may indicate you're looking for satisfaction in the wrong place. Or as the old country song says, looking for love in all the wrong places. Solomon takes you down every avenue of life 
that purposes to bring satisfaction and shows you it's a dead-end street over and over and over and over. And Solomon has done you an immense favor. He's wiser than you. He had more success and more authority than you. He had more money than you. He's the richest, he's the richest man that ever lived. He shows you definitively what awaits you if you continue down all of these different paths of life. And the spoiler alert is in verse 2. It's vanity and frustration. It loosens your grip on this sin-cursed world. The second goal Ecclesiastes has is to teach you how to live wisely and with joy in this world. And it will also teach you to long for the next. This truth is ready-made for believers who have lived long enough to know some of the things that Solomon describes. Some of you here have lived long enough to know very well that life brings frustration and there's no lasting satisfaction here because you've tasted it yourself. You've grasped hold of something that was intriguing, that was pleasing, that was satisfying, and it was satisfying, but only for a few moments. And it drained away. And then you're looking for something else to satisfy you. Ecclesiastes will specifically tell you why that is and how God will fix that one day. If this is you, Ecclesiastes will show you where you can find joy even in this life. If you're frustrated and you're discouraged, in this book, Solomon will force you to strip away any immaturity and naivete about life, and he'll show you where you can find joy while granting you wisdom to live in a Genesis 3 or cursed world. And if that wasn't enough, it answers questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? It actually asks and then answers the question, is life really worth living? Derek Kidner said, Solomon asked questions that most of us would hesitate to push so far. Solomon forces us to think about questions we spend the majority of our lives trying to avoid or place things in it to keep us from thinking about those those hard things. And Solomon is not satisfied with the easy answers that children sometimes get in Sunday school. And children are supposed to get easy answers because they're children. But life doesn't allow you to remain a child very long, does it? God does not pretend that that as a believer you're immune to the curse. And Ecclesiastes places that right in your face. You will experience frustration and futility. One step forward, two steps back, you'll, you'll experience injustice, you're going to experience calamity, even death. But the good news is God doesn't intend for believers to experience that to a hopeless level. God doesn't expect or intend for believers to experience a hopeless level of the curse. And so this book also teaches great truths about God. 
it presents Him as the omnipotent Creator and the Sovereign Lord over all the universe, including the Sovereign Lord over the curse. Who was the one that put the curse on the earth, that cursed you and everything around? It was God Himself, caused by Adam's sin and then your sin follows in kind, but God's the one that placed the curse on the earth. Ecclesiastes is going to teach you how to live wisely in a frustrating and at times perplexing world and even enjoying the gifts that God has mingled in it. The instruction of Ecclesiastes will give you skill so you can reduce the level of frustration and even flourish through wise living. Or to say it succinctly, it will give you a right view of the fall and what to expect in life. It will give you a right view of God's plan and His sovereignty. And it will show you what God says you should pursue to enjoy here and now while showing you what not to pursue. That sounds pretty good to me. So let me introduce you to the book by setting the big picture in your mind before you dive into the verse. And I just showed it to you. Here's an introduction to Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the big picture before we we go to the little parts. And when you look at Ecclesiastes as a whole, you find that Ecclesiastes has a very peculiar structure. There's a prerequisite study for understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. It has a practical structure that I'll show you, and then it ends with a pleasing solution. The book has a strange approach. That's why you read it and you scratch your head at times. The book needs to be studied. It needs to be studied, though, in a specific way, and I'll show you what that way is. And the book has a very clear structure, and it ends by providing a very wise solution. Let me show you the peculiar style first. Now, anyone who's ever read Ecclesiastes, maybe even as you were listening to Jesse read it this morning, you know what I mean by peculiar. My friend said it reads like the lyrics from a Pink Floyd album, if those of you who know who he is, I would not recommend him to you. (laughs) It's hard to interpret, isn't it? I mean, you read it and, and you either think this, this God knows my life or you want to put your head under the covers and not come out again. At times, when you read Ecclesiastes, it almost sounds unchristian. It sounds unbiblical. I mean, you don't imagine, I don't imagine Solomon sitting down with a pen and writing out Ecclesiastes with his I can do all things through Christ strengthens me t-shirt, right? Because the, the things that are in this book are that are that are there, they're hard. And because of that, they're often the book's often passed over or rejected, and that's a tragic mistake. You will have a massive gap in your in your theology, in, in the way that you view life if you don't grasp Ecclesiastes. I mean it's a gaping hole that, that can shipwreck you. And I'm going to show you that this book is vital for you to study, and it'll change your life if you grasp its meaning. However, if you don't understand what Solomon is doing, you're going to get very confused and you're going to misinterpret the book. Let me show you what I mean. Look at 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Ecclesiastes has verses that, that almost sound unbiblical. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That, that sounds like pessimism, doesn't it? <laughs> What's the use of it? This is, this is like, this is the Eeyore verse of the Old Testament. I don't know. Look at chapter 5, verse 18, if you will. It says, Eat and drink and enjoy oneself. That sounds a lot like live like you're dying or YOLO or whatever else they say today. It's, that sounds a lot like hedonism. Eat and drink for, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Just go at it. Go at life as hard as you can possibly go. That sounds like that. There are, there are verses that almost seem like they're promoting agnosticism. Look at Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12. Listen to this. Agnosticism. I can't know. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? During the few years of his feudal life, he'll spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? It sounds like agnosticism. Maybe there's a meaning, but who can know? And then there's also some verses that almost sound like they're flirting with, with fatalism. Look back at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. After this passage that you probably know very well about God's sovereignty, it almost sounds like Solomon is flirting with fatalism. Verse 19, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. One dies and so does the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there's no advantage for man over beast. All is vanity. They all go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. I mean, are those verses in the Bible? They're in the Bible. Pessimism, fatalism. And on the flip side, there are other verses. Look at these. Chapter 2, verse 13. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? Centered on God. Chapter 3, verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. And there's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take away from it, for God has so worked that men should fear Him. There's the fear of the Lord. Eternity and the fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes. And finally, the book ends with chapter 12, 13, and 14, which is the conclusion. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. The order of all of those perplexing verses 
came from Dr. Joel James, who said, on one hand, Ecclesiastes presents life from the perspective of a bitter skeptic from a university philosophy department. There are statements that make the hair on the back of your Christian neck stand up. And on the other hand, it makes statements worthy of framing for your desk or a refrigerator magnet. So what do you do with this book? Well, many commentators have struggled with that, and they've been all over the board. In fact, some Jewish rabbis rejected Ecclesiastes and concluded it wasn't part of the canon because of some of those verses that I just read to you. Jerome, who was responsible for the Latin Vulgate, used it to convince a woman to go into the monastic life. He said Ecclesiastes' message was to reject all worldly pleasure. And then others have taken it to the other extreme. It's a message of carpe diem, seize the day, eat and drink for tomorrow you die, like Epicurus. So which is correct? Well, none of those. It's true, Ecclesiastes is not a book that yields its meaning easily. It doesn't open the door before you knock. You know those passages that we really like? That means before you, before you even begin to knock on it, it just, it just flies open. You know exactly what it says and exactly how to apply it in life. Ecclesiastes doesn't do that. You have to push a little. But don't let the peculiar style stop you. Because when you push, you're going to, fly, you're going to find unblemished wisdom for life. Remember who wrote the book. This gives you a, a, an indication of what's going on with the style. Look at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 1. He tells you the author. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, Solomon, is the one who wrote this book. And what is Solomon known for? Besides his riches and his concubines, right? His wisdom. This book is written in a very wise way. And that's part of the peculiar style. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he wrote this book in such a way that puts that wisdom on display. But you're going to stumble over it if you don't understand what he's trying to do. Solomon gives you a realistic view of life while pointing you toward where to find joy. He didn't write it with a pessimistic view of life, but a realistic one. And listen, he writes it in such a way that he forces you to look at it square in the face. Solomon is very purposeful and wise in his style. It's intentional that you feel what you feel whenever you read it. It's deliberate. It's written deliberately, so you will feel things like, well, if that's true, why even exist? If that's true, why even get out of bed in the morning? It's written that way. Solomon writes in a way that pulls you under the water of the cursed life, and it holds you there until your lungs heave and you're grasping, or gasping for the air of heaven. And he does that on purpose. It's not nihilistic, pessimistic, agnostic, or fatalistic in a book that should be avoided. It's a wisdom book, and it points to true joy. And Solomon does that because he's just like us. 
you get he's a lot wiser. Listen, Solomon knows that unless he forces us to feel these things, we will not deal with the reality of them. We'll try not to think about them. We'll blow them off or avoid them altogether. And when they come, and they will come, you will be frustrated. You will feel all of the things that you're feeling as you read Ecclesiastes in real life. When those things come, if you don't understand this book, you're going to be lost in the joyless weeds of the curse. And that's not where God's people should spend their time. Solomon makes you feel what Jesus declares in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. When you and I feel the curse, this world loses some of its luster. And that feeling pushes our gaze toward Christ. And Solomon shows you why, 1 Timothy 6, about trusting in the uncertainty of riches, why it's true, and he explains to you what it means. Too much prosperity, too much gold brings a spiritual sickness with it. It can insulate you from the reality that there is a curse and you end up living your life for the wrong things. It's dangerous. Everybody panders after money. It's a dangerous thing to have a lot of it, the Bible says. And Solomon is wise enough to know that the only way our affections will be set on Christ in heaven is if he intentionally ties a lead weight to our ankles and pulls us down. Not to drown us but to give us the oxygen tank. Ecclesiastes is a traveler's guide to life under the sun. It's a literary masterpiece written by the wisest man who ever lived under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that should be enough for us to study it. And I will show you how he does that before, before we're done with the book. But Ecclesiastes has a prerequisite study. Now, if you've ever went to college or was part of a trade school or whatever it is, you understand the term prerequisite, pre. It's, there's some study that you have to do prior to taking this class. If you don't understand Ecclesiastes, you're going to be subjected to endless frustration in this life and get it very, very wrong. Or worse, you're going to end up blaming God for what, what you see around you. The Ecclesiastes was never intended to be read alone. It has a prerequisite study. It has prerequisite courses. If you read Ecclesiastes alone, the message is going to be out of balance. And God never intended it to be a standalone book. It is a single book. It's a single unit of thought. It's one author all the way, all the way through. But it's not an only child. Ecclesiastes has several sisters. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon and is part of what the Bible calls wisdom literature or the wisdom books. And there are four of them. Five if you want to include the wisdom psalms. And they are Song of Solomon, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And they, they all go together. Don't read one of these books without the other three. Or you're going to misinterpret what it says, and if you misinterpret what any of these books say, then you're going to misinterpret life. You're going to get something out of order. One commentator called these books the four horses that pull the cart of wisdom. 
Song of Solomon is wisdom in marriage. Who in here would like some wisdom in their marriage? Don't raise your hand. I'll do it for you. I need all the wisdom I can get in marriage. Proverbs is wisdom for life in general. Job, wisdom when calamity strikes. Ecclesiastes, wisdom for living life in a cursed world. Solomon wrote three of these books. And he wrote them as a set. He asked God for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have that wisdom in this book as the very voice of God. And the wisdom books go together. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes are all meant to tether one another. When Proverbs begins to float off into, into the idea of quid pro quo, if I do this, I guarantee these results, then, then Job comes along and, and, and holds it back and tethers it. And then when you, when you look at Job and you see the calamity that, that comes that for seemingly no reason, Ecclesiastes comes along and, 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 and keeps you whenever you're in Job's world, from, from going over the precipice. Proverbs presents life as it should be. Job presents life how it sometimes is instead. And Ecclesiastes describes the frustration and despair you feel when you're living in the instead. And it tells you what to do about it. Proverbs teaches us wise living in all of life. Who hasn't loved the Proverbs? It was my grandfather's favorite book. He didn't get saved to him in his 60s. And Proverbs was one of his favorite books. Proverbs says, if you do these things with relationship, with money, and with life, this is what you can expect. It's wise living versus foolish living, right? And then Job comes along and says, yeah, that's true. But is that always the case? Because I have these circumstances over here that don't seem to follow Proverbs. <laughs> what do I do with all those wise things? When I do all those wise things and, and it doesn't work out in the proverbial way, what do I do then? Job teaches us wise living when facing the calamities and tragedies that we can't explain. Like when we honor God and our business folds. Like when our children are born with autism or something else, or when someone we, we love, who loves God, dies a tragic death. Job shows us wisdom in the face of that. Song of Solomon teaches us wise living in marriage. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and adds its voice to the trifecta. It teaches us wise living with the curse. It's wisdom for living in a fallen world. It's an applicational commentary on Genesis 3. And it will explain to you what's going on in life. Ecclesiastes shows you how to reduce the frustration you naturally feel in a world which is broken. Joel James says it is not negative but realistic. Solomon wrote it to help believers come to grips with the reality of life under the curse and to teach them how wise, godly people can and should live. And it shows us that 
very clearly through its practical structure. You say, wow, Brian, that that sounds pretty good. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't really expecting to find all of that in in Ecclesiastes. I, I read ahead and it didn't... It didn't sound very good at all to me. And you say, that sounds great, but when I read the book, all I see is vanity and strange verses, and it doesn't sound very good at all. Well, the first thing I would say is remember the first point. That's what you're supposed to feel. That's Solomon's wisdom. It's Solomon's intent for you to feel the frustration of life, and he makes you read with frustration. It's a masterful writing technique. But you don't have to look hard to find the interpretive grid for the book. How how do you make sense out of this book? The whole book. Not getting lost in the weeds in a passage. And whenever you do find those passages that seem to talk about fatalism, what do you do with those? How do you keep them connected to the whole? Well, the interpretive grid is is hanging on the the front stoop and it's written plainly on the, the rug at the back door before you leave. When you're trying to figure out the message of a, of a book, you go two places. You go to the introduction, and then you go to the end. You go to the preface, and then you go to the conclusion. The preface is where the author tells you his thesis, what he's going to write about, how he, what he hopes to prove. And, and the conclusion wraps it all up, tells you what he just told you and, and why he told you what he said. So look at the introduction. Look at both of these places, and that's the grid through which you're going to be able to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Look, if you would, at verse 2. Here's the, here's the preface. Here's the introduction. The words of the preacher, the son of the king of David. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is, all is vanity. That's his thesis. It's repeated. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's repeated for emphasis. It's his conclusion that he keeps drawing over and over. Every time he runs down an avenue and observes and participates in something that proposes, maybe, maybe here I'll find satisfaction, you get to the end and Solomon concludes the same thing that he says right here. Chasing the wind, futility, frustration. It's his conclusion that he draws over and over about life in a Genesis 3 world. And he explores every area of human life. And as he does, in every area he finds the curse. There's not a single area of human life where the curse is not operating. Even in the church, right? Jeff preached last week about the unity. Because there's potential for disunity. Even in the church. Part of the curse. Solomon even ends with it in chapter 12, verse 8. He repeats his motto after he goes on this exploratory trip. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. And he, he, he does all of this observation, tells us his thesis. We'll see next week his scientific method. And then we'll look at his research. And as he begins to wrap it up and bring the whole book to conclusion, what does he say? In verse 8 of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. He ends where he started. 
all of my research that was done by the wisest man, the richest man, the most powerful man that ever lived, all of my research proved my thesis. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And what Solomon describes in the book is the futility of life after the fall. That is what Genesis 3 says that life will be. A lot of times, even Christians live under the delusion that there's not a curse. And Genesis 3 says there's a curse. And that curse is still operating until the very end of the Bible. And it's operating even for Christians. God told Adam, as he pronounced the curse, you were taken from the dust, you'll work your whole life in the dust, and then you return to the dust. That kind of sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? And all of that's because of the fall. And that's what brings futility in this life. That's what brings the feeling and the result of, I put all of my effort, I did everything right, I didn't cheat on Weight Watchers, and I still gained a pound this week. It's the fall. And God didn't create it that way. He created man to take dominion, to reproduce, to fill the earth. Man was given work and purpose to tend and keep the garden, to be the Creator's representative over all the other parts of creation. Man alone was created in the image of God. But then the fall happened. And the entire creation was plunged into futility. It produced vanity. And that's what man has in his life. <clears throat> the best it offers is empty. Even with all your labor, you get ahead a little bit, and you're like a wave that stretches onto the beach. Even the best waves wash a little bit farther than others, only to be drawn back into the sea, never to be seen again. Ecclesiastes is a picture of the curse lived out in life. You say, that's depressing. <laughs> well, you're right. <clears throat> but I told you there are two places where you look for meaning. And, and if you only look at one and you don't look at the other, you're going to get the whole thing out of balance. The introduction and the conclusion. Look at the conclusion. How do we know what the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is? It's stated right there in verse 13, right? The conclusion. This is not like, Solomon does not do like the preacher that says, in closing, and then 15 minutes later, he's still going. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. It's not until you get to the very end of the book that Solomon makes you look up and shows you where the oxygen is. Let us hear the conclusion of all of Solomon's observation and exploration. It's specifically spelled out. Fear God and keep His commandments. Why? Look at verse 14. For God will bring everything 
to judgment. What does judgment imply? Does God have to judge in the new heaven and the new earth in the sense of of bringing consequence? No. Judgment's already passed. There is no judgment in the new heaven and the new earth. But judgment needs to come right now. You know why it needs to come? Because there's something that's wrong. And verse 14 says, God will make what is wrong right. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes is God will put an end to the curse. And that's the promise that Ecclesiastes makes. But if you look for an end to the curse now, while you're going through life in a cursed world, you're going to get disillusioned. And God never promised a life without a curse. He promised a life without a curse in the future. And everything in between the preface, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, and the conclusion, let's hear the conclusion of the matter, God will make right everything that's wrong. Everything in between in Ecclesiastes is governed by these two magnetic poles. And get either of those wrong and your interpretive compass will not point north as you read. You're going to be out of calibration. The world to come is where you find reality. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14 says, Life is not pointless because God will bring everything to judgment. God says what you experience now is not the way that it's supposed to be. And He will ultimately make it the way that it is supposed to be. He'll remove the curse. He'll reward with good. And God will bring the futility of the fall to an end because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Solomon drives you to despair in this world so that you would desire another. And that's the point of a curse of the curse for a believer. The futility of this life is to remind you that this is not your home. And there is a way to a place and there's coming a place where what is wrong will be right. Is that echoed somewhere else in the Bible? It is. It's echoed at the very end. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. Does the New Testament agree with Ecclesiastes, agree with Solomon? I'll show you many places where it does. Well, let me show you how it agrees fully with its conclusion. Revelation 20. In verse 14, I wish I could take credit for how wise it would have been to preach Ecclesiastes in the morning and Revelation at night, specifically Revelation 20 through 22, but I can't take credit for it. I didn't plan it, but God did. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes in the morning and looking full in the face of the curse, and then on Sunday night in Revelation, we're going to be looking at the new heaven and the new earth and what awaits us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Revelation is not just a book about the apocalypse. It describes this judgment that Solomon mentions when all will be made right. Revelation 20, verse 14, the end of the great white throne judgment, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They represent the curse. The great enemy of man, they'll be judged. 
Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. It gives us a small glimpse of what that world will be like that Solomon promises is coming when God will judge everything. Verse 4. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And if that wasn't clear enough, look at Revelation 22.3 because it tells us exactly what God's going to do succinctly. Revelation 22.3 There will no longer be any curse. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You came from the dust. You labor in the dust. You'll go back to the dust, says the curse. But in the end, God will transform the dust into a glorious place where we will be with Him forever and there will no longer be a curse. And that brings us to the pleasing Solution. Ecclesiastes offers a real solution to the real futility and frustration of real life. It provides two signposts for a wise traveler living life under the sun. The first is joy and meaning are found in God. In eternity. If you look for it anyplace else, you're going to be disillusioned. And the second signpost explains to us how to live wisely now with joy in the same cursed world. But you have to understand the first point before you can benefit from the second one. You have to understand the giver of the gifts before you can enjoy the gifts. Because whatever you treasure, that's where your heart will be. And if you treasure God in eternity, then you'll be able to enjoy the gifts that He gives while you live under the sun in a sin-cursed world. If you try to find satisfaction in this world, you'll never find God and your life will be filled with meaningless futility. That's what Solomon says. You see, most people look at life through the wrong end of the binoculars. Oh, there's a curse, and in the, even though there's a curse, you can still see the goodness of God. You can still see His handiwork. The heavens declare it. But most people look through the wrong end of the binoculars. They look for satisfaction in this life, and it seems far, far away, and they never reach it. But if you look at life through the, through the lens of Ecclesiastes through the lens of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, you'll realize that meaning and purpose are in a person. And they're not in a place. And that will give you the ability to enjoy the gifts now. And it will remove the frustration of the curse that you experience. You can reduce the frustration of living in a sin-cursed world by doing what Ecclesiastes teaches. Living this life is not entirely futile. And that's good news. God has appointed a day in which He'll judge. And when in all of the frustration, futility, and difficulty, you fear God and you keep His commandments, there will be reward. 
and all of the unjust fat cats that fare sumptuously and disregard God and the poor will be stripped bare like the rich man before Lazarus in that judgment. And all of the injustice in the world that seems like nothing is happening will be judged one day. And all the sickness and those crippled by the curse will be healed and made whole. And finally, the greatest enemy of all in this life, death, will be judged, meaning it will be no more. Ecclesiastes offers a solution to the futility and frustration of life. It is Christ and His promised kingdom. And if you look for it any place other than Him, coming to Him, what you read in Ecclesiastes is not to, to make you feel something to to, to show you where the answer is, that will be your life. The weight of it will pull you under, and as you're gasping for oxygen, there will be none. And the only thing that you'll find at the end is not release. Death will not be released for you. It will release you into the hands of the Creator and the Judge that you've rejected all the days of your life. And that's not why Christ came, was it? He came to undo the curse, and He's the only one who can. And the first step that He takes in undoing the curse is He forgives all of your sin, past, present, and future. And He cleanses your conscience from dead works so that you can serve the living God in the cursed world. And so you can point others to where they can also find hope. It's good news, isn't it? We can share with others. Let you bury your heads.